Well, if you haven't done so already, uh, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 1 Peter 2, 12 to 17. I want to speak this morning on the subject of resuming gathered worship. And so I, I, I said earlier, I'd tell you kind of why we're making a departure uh, from 1 Timothy, and that's it. Uh, just sort of uh, speaking to this subject about how should we think and prepare ourselves for resuming gathered worship. I know that question is on everyone's mind. Our elders met uh, Thursday night to talk about that, and so just kind of wanted to speak into all of that this morning. I did make a short reference to this passage in First Tim, uh, First Peter last week in the sermon where I was talking about showing honor in a multi-generational church. And so you, you could consider this message um, uh, in part sort of a, a, an extended footnote to that message on the subject of honoring one another. But, but it also offers some timely guidance for us to consider um, how to resume gathered worship. And I'll come back to 1 Timothy next week and we'll continue this series. I, I will say it's likely in you know, the weeks and even months that follow, um, I'll plan sermon series and then I'll interrupt them because there are just likely to be different moments that uh, God needs to speak into or needs us to speak into. And so uh, we'll, we'll do that as that's necessary. Um, but, you know, in, in schools, you may be familiar with this, uh, if you remember as a student, certainly teachers would be uh, aware of the concept of doing like a, um, a readiness assessment. So you might be getting ready to teach a unit on math, let's say, and you want to test whether the students know what they already need to know in order to understand what you're getting ready to teach. So kind of prerequisite skills, prior knowledge, that kind of thing. You also might do a readiness assessment if you're getting ready to take a unit test or something like that, maybe a big exam, and you want to take a little short abbreviated readiness test to find out if you're ready for the big test. Well, however you want to sort of apply that analogy here, as we're thinking about resuming gathered worship, there's a little readiness assessment that we can take, some questions that arise out of First Peter uh, chapter 2 that'll just help us examine ourselves and, um, and how ready we are to resume worship together. So that's what's on uh, my heart this morning and uh, what I've prepared for you. And so um, let's look together at how First Peter chapter 2 speaks to that subject this morning in verses 12 through 17. And I will ask you to stand um, in honor of the reading of the Word of God, and again, just in not only reverence to Him, but attentiveness to His authoritative voice as the Scripture speaks. Beginning in verse 12, I'm reading now the English Standard Version. Hear the Word of the Lord. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, 
Fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, God, again, we are grateful to be invited to approach you and to do so knowing that you have spoken to us in the scriptures. It is truth and life to us. We look for it to be exactly that. In this moment, you know that with every passing day, Lord, we're encountering new things, new challenges, finding new uh, issues in our own hearts, perhaps, and seeing and hearing what comes out of them. And so, God, we lay all that bare before you today and ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people and for your glory. As always, Lord, would you move me out of the way and just use my voice as an instrument, a conduit for you to communicate to your people. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, if you were to glance back to the beginning of the letter here um, in 1 Peter, you'd see that he addresses it to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the recipients are Christians who are are scattered uh, throughout the Greco-Roman world, this particular region, um, you know, part of Asia, Asia Minor, and uh, anyway, that the, sort of the where on the map is not so important, but but it's it's Christians who are scattered and they're living as exiles in their own culture wherever they are. So they're they're not literally exiled, probably most of them, but as Christians in that culture, they lived as exiles. They weren't accepted um, as mainstream kind of in any social circle. They're a disfavored minority and sometimes badly mistreated. And there are two primary reasons for that low esteem that they're held in. Number one, many people thought that Christians were just a Jewish sect and Jews had become to be disdained in many uh, places around that region in the, in, the, in the Roman world and kind of thought of as ungovernable. They had been rebellious against Roman authorities. Um, of course, Rome had come in in 70 and finally just sort of leveled the place, had sieged Jerusalem, um, you know, toppled the temple, did atrocious things in Masada, um, but they, they just utterly put the Jews under their feet. But they, they had been rebelling on and off for a period of time. And that was kind of the relationship uh, that the that Roman citizens and Roman authorities had with the Jewish community. So, so when they thought of Christians as just a Jewish sect, that right out of the gate, Christians were not uh, well-loved in, in many cases. The second reason would have been that Christians were, were sometimes thought of as, as kind of a secret society with some bizarre practices and subversive anti-Roman agendas. So there, there would have been lots of little, you know, secret societies that, you know, kind of popped up in different places um, around at, throughout the Roman Empire. At that time, many of them did have a political agenda. And so in some respects, any kind of a uh, little secret group like that um, would have just been assumed to be anti-authoritarian a little bit. But if you think about some of the things that people would have heard about Christians, 
when they just hear little snippets. Of, they don't really know Christians. They don't know much about their worship, but they hear things like they have love feasts with brothers and sisters. So they're thought to maybe be incestuous and they, they eat flesh and blood. So they, they, people think they're cannibalistic and um, they're awaiting the coming of a king to establish a kingdom. So they're kind of anti-authoritarian, etc. There There are just all these misunderstandings and assumptions based on little things that people have heard about them. And so they're not well-liked. And increasingly, they would be treated as criminals even by the state. Uh, at, at different times in the, in the following couple of centuries, the clamp would really be tightened on them. And so for this reason, because they are held in such derision, uh, Peter says to them, as we've just read, don't give any justification for their hating you. So if you were to even right now scan back over uh, the passage that we just read with that background information that I just shared, that might be a little bit illuminating because he's saying, we understand everybody hates us with and without cause, perhaps. But don't give them any justification for hating you and treating you as an enemy of the state. So these, these brief instructions here. Um, that he offers to the church in this short passage provides some helpful guidance to us as we consider assembling once again in terms of what ought our attitudes and posture be toward the world, toward civil authorities, toward one another in the fellowship, and toward God himself. And so I want to I offer us from uh, this four questions, as I said, to assess our readiness to resume gathered worship. A four-question assessment, um, you, you probably always hated this in school, because if you miss one, you've already got, what, like a 75? So uh, <laughs> uh, these, these are easy, easy questions, though. Number one, are we moved by a proper fear of God? You notice in verse 17, um, God is the only one we're told to fear, and if we think about even right now, there's all kinds of things that are sources of fear, perhaps, for people. In other ways, people are, ways in which people are accused of being fearful, um, which even though they might not be, but uh, never do I hear that spoken of in our current situation about our fear of God, which is, which is the only place it's supposed to be properly directed by believers. And I, and I try to issue the reminder uh, periodically that our worship is for him. Now, we are blessed by it. Okay? It blesses us. It spiritually nourishes us, but it is not for us. And again, there'd be a, a helpful little parenthetical note there to say if we were to do a little examination of how even we personally approach worship, and how as churches we offer it, if it's for us rather than for him, it's probably misdirected, misguided right out of the gate. But our worship is for him, and it is part of how we demonstrate our fear of him, whether we really actually have any proper fear of God is demonstrated in part in the way we worship. The, the Greek word here for fear is 
phobeo. You may hear in that word, you may recognize it uh, as where we, we get our word phobia from. Now, the, the, really the only reason I mention that is to say it means fear. Uh, fear means fear here. It doesn't mean something else. And very often we want to we want to kind of soften that word and say, well, it doesn't really mean fear. It just means reverence. It certainly contains that, includes that. It has that connotation to it. But fear here means fear. And it's the same kind of fear you would read about in the New Testament when the uh, the disciples are out on the uh, boat and it's a storm blows up and they are afraid. And then Jesus comes and says, you know, why are you afraid? And he calms the storm. They're afraid. It's the same word. It's, it's fear. So we don't want to soften the word. We also don't want to misunderstand it because often the things we fear are things we avoid, right? In fact, probably more often than not, things that we fear we would avoid. If you knew that uh, one of your neighbor's down the street had um, a threatening dog who wasn't necessarily uh, kept in a fence in the backyard or whatever, um, you might go the other way around. You might go the long way around to avoid having to pass by. That dog, usually things we fear are things we avoid. But for the believer, a proper fear of God doesn't drive us away from him. It actually draws us toward him. So we want to be, we want to be drawn to him. We want to know that we can approach him. And yet we don't want to do so with this, with a with with familiarity um, that leads us to approach him like he's just one of the guys and, and he's just hanging out. He is a God like no other. He is holy in the sense that he is totally other than anything in the created order. And, and that is uh, not only worthy of worship, but invokes fear in us. Now, it's a little bit of a hard concept to get our minds around a, a fear that would be attractive <laughs> rather than repulsive. And so let me, I'm going to illustrate this in a way, this is kind of a crude analogy, crude in the sense that it's just so base and rudimentary, it almost is it's not befitting of God. In fact, I'm really not saying it's true of God, but just to give us a, a concept of, uh, of a different kind of fear that, we, that many of us have actually experienced. And that would be when we, we see like thrill rides um, at a carnival or, or a, a music park, theme park, and that kind of thing, like a roller coaster. Okay, so when, when, uh, when our family lived up in Virginia some years ago, we, we went to Bush Gardens, uh, pretty regularly, a few summers there. And um, as you're walking into the park at Bush Gardens, there's this really tall roller coaster. And I know in different places there are ones more threatening than that, but, but it's almost like it's designed for this purpose, put right up front there in this really towering way that that's what greets you as you walk in to Bush Gardens. And so you're, you, you look at the just enormous height of this thing and you hear the screams of people before you've even walked in the gate and you go, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. Let's go do that. <laughs> like that's how thrill rides are. And so you go ride it and you, you know, you come down and it strikes you with all the fear. And then you get one of those cameras that takes your picture at just that moment where you can't hide. Like you can't, you can't 
like try to convince people that you weren't just terrified at that moment because it's all over your face and everybody can see it on the screen there where it took your picture and you come down and you like wipe the tears, you know, out of your eyes and then you say, let's do it again. So there's a fear that is thrilling. And uh, in, the, in the very loosest of ways, if we can get our mind around that, that for the beloved of God, the believer in Christ, God is so great and holy and majestic um, that he is fear-striking, awe-inspiring, that there's a reason why as people approach even angels that they fall on their face in fear because we can't even stand it. And yet there is something that delights the heart of the one who is known by him. That's the kind of fear uh, or, or just even a small measure of the kind of fear that we ought to have of God. Now, why is that worth elaborating on right now? Because he is worthy to be feared, our obligations to him become our highest priorities. Our obligations to him become our highest priorities. As we're thinking about the subject of resuming gathered worship, the, one of the questions is, what is our obligation to him with regard to worship? And that becomes our highest priority. And so we will worship him as a community of faith. The church gathers, the church must gather. The church, by definition, is an assembly, and we will. Uh, the station we are in right now is a temporary one, and granted, uh, different ones among us have a different level of patience for that. Some people were over it in about like three hours, and, uh, and some of us maybe um, could, could be a little bit more forbearing from now and, and last it out, uh, you know, way into the future. Probably most of us live in between there somewhere, but regardless, it is temporary, and we will worship. He requires it of us. But we also, if we fear him, and if we put his obligations as the highest priority, we'll also obey him in every other respects. Not only will we worship him, but we will obey him in all other respects. And that means obeying him in the way we relate to other people, which is the primary thrust of this passage that we've read here, is our relationship to other people, and most specifically, our subjection to authority. And so question number two is, are we making every effort to honor civil authorities and comply with their orders? This is kind of the sticking point uh, for us and for some of us right now. I mentioned last week that when the New Testament speaks about showing honor, honor is understood to be the possession of the person to whom it is due. It's not ours to decide how generously or how sparingly we're going to dispense it, depending on whether we think somebody's worthy of it or how we feel about them right now and that kind of thing. It's not ours to decide that. And so a high and special honor is owed to civil authorities, not just Christian ones, not just good ones, uh, but to all civil authorities who are appointed by God himself and given that authority to rule in the domain of this earth. 
They're due that honor and Christians are commanded to give it. To withhold it is theft. And we really need to let that one settle in here. I left you with that to consider last week, even as we're talking about just honoring people in, in the fellowship, just in the multi-generational church. But honor belongs to those in authority. To withhold it is theft. And so that means that our uh, government officials are due a certain uh, uh, level of respect of reverence and deference and obedience to lawful command. Now, the word lawful there uh, is going to be one of the big questions about how, pe how people are thinking um, even right now about some of, some of the uh, orders around the country and that sort of thing. There are constitutional questions being tossed around and all this kind of thing. I'm not qualified to dive into that, and I'm not going to. Um, but it is just to say we, we are commanded to give that respect and reverence and obedience um, to civil authorities. Now, granted, even the believers Peter is uh, writing to, and Peter himself, had limits on that because if they commanded them to violate the law of God, if they, if they commanded Christians to renounce Christ, to worship other gods, to, to worship emperors. They, they refused to do it. But, but even, even in their refusal, they had a, a, a posture of respect and honor. It's like a, I, I think of the, uh, a quote by Thomas More, uh, a, a Catholic uh, leader in England during the uh, reign of Henry VIII, who was ultimately executed and said, um, I die, I, th I think this is right. I didn't write it down, so pardon me if this is an exact quote. I die the king's good servant, but God's first. I die the king's good servant, but God's first. So, but we, we ought to have that humble heart that's postured to honor the king all the way, all the way to the end of the line where we can't go any Father, there, there, there have been and likely will be those points in our lives at some place. But they're owed honor. We're to give it to them. And so uh, let's allow Peter to put this in a little bit better perspective for us. This letter was probably written from Rome in the mid-60s, not the 1960s, but the 060s, about the year A.D. 62 to 63, probably somewhere in the 60s, during the reign of Nero, who in the year 64 would be the first emperor to persecute Christians, to sort of decree that Christians be persecuted. Church history tells us Peter himself was crucified in the year 68 at the hands of Nero. And so connect those dots, beloved. Peter would be put to death by the very emperor he was telling the church to honor. Now, whatever your beef is with any government official, any elected official, any appointed official right now, it does not compare to that kind of oppression and adversity and hostility. It wasn't conditioned. What Peter is saying is not conditioned at all on the fitness of the one in office or even the justice of his rule. 
The only limits that were placed on is what God had commanded and that they must obey him uh, before men. Are we making every effort to honor civil authorities and comply with their orders? That's a heart issue, but it is an important diagnostic question and an important readiness question for our return to worship uh, as an assembly. Question number three, are our plans for worship and ministry governed by love for our congregation? It says here, uh, love the brotherhood, right? We're to fear God, honor the emperor. We love the brotherhood. There's a special love we're supposed to share for one another as brothers and sisters in the faith. The first Sunday that we uh, didn't gather back in March when all this sort of hit and, and we, the first Sunday we didn't meet, I preached a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It was called Being Led by Love or Lead with Love was sort of the alternative uh, title to that. But I'm not going to rehash that now. But the gist of that was that our attitudes and actions in this pandemic need to be led by love for neighbor rather than our personal wishes or interests. And Paul says in that letter, not, not everything is about your Christian liberty. Like your freedom isn't the prevailing issue most of the time, but the good of your brother is the issue most of the time. And so he says um, earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, all things are permissible, but not all things are helpful. You Just because you may do it doesn't mean you ought to do it. And that'd be one of those love principles that I said ought to guide us um, through this. But he says in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So that's the message of how love and humility ought to uh, really dictate what the heart of a believer um, says and does m much of the time. So we, we have to give thoughtful consideration uh, to health risks associated with gathered worship. Um, and it needs to, uh, we have to make every effort to minimize and manage those risks. In other words, that love for our brothers requires that we think carefully about the health risks of gathering and that we make every effort to minimize them and manage them. Now, once again, all how we do that, what those are and even how we go about that is a bit veiled for all of us. It's not like anybody has perfect insight into how we do that. But indifference is not an option in those regards. And so again, let me, let me offer uh, sort of an illustration and this is a real case study uh, of something that happened elsewhere in the country, but just um, a, a sort of putting feet on this, an illustration of why this matters so much to think carefully about such things. At the early onset of the coronavirus, uh, when it sort of reached our shores, uh, Washington State, I think, was probably the first place where there are confirmed cases. And in mid-March, there was a community choir in the state of Washington that held a rehearsal uh, knowing that this virus was, you know, kind of in the air, so to speak. They took 
reasonable precautions to try to minimize the transfer of the virus. So they avoided, when they uh, held a rehearsal, they avoided their usual handshakes and hugs. Um, they had people bring their own music so they didn't have to hold things that other people had touched. They uh, tried to distance themselves a bit during the rehearsal, although I think the space was, was a little bit more confined. It probably didn't allow them to do a six feet uh, social distancing, but they tried to spread out and take some reasonable precautions. They had even gone to the, the lengths of telling choir members prior to practice, if anybody had symptoms, don't come. Really, a lot of those things we were prepared to do on the front end of this if we had gathered the following week in church. According to public health records, there were 61 people present in that rehearsal, including one carrier of the virus. One out of 61 had uh, COVID-19. And the result of that, in really a matter of days, there were 32 confirmed cases and 20 probable cases of infection out of 61 choir members. 52, 52 people out of 61 ended up infected because of that two and a half hour rehearsal where they were singing. Singing uh, projects a little bit more wind and a little bit farther. 86% of them ended up infected. Now, we, we know that, the, I don't share that in order to be fearful of uh, gathering any, any place at any time again. We can't spend our lives shut up in our houses and certainly not coward in fear. But we, we also can't live in denial um, and defiance because... Uh, those things aren't going to, whatever, whatever we want to claim is true isn't going to make it true. And uh, we want to know that we're taking precautions to love our brothers and sisters well enough to try to anticipate these kinds of problems, these risks, minimize them and manage them. And so that's part of what goes into our thinking as elders about this and what needs to go into the thinking of, uh, of every member of every congregation. So question number four, what do our words and actions communicate to the community at large? What, what, what do our words and actions as a people of faith, what do our words and actions communicate to the community at large? So Peter says in verse 17, honor everyone, right? Honor everyone. But if you look back in verse 12, it says something else instructive about uh, kind of our message and presence among the community at large. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That even in that setting where people were predisposed to dislike Christians and to speak evil about them, Peter says, let your conduct be so pure that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds, good deeds and glorify God in the end. 
what is our, so I'm not, I'm going to really answer my question. I said, the question is, what are our words and actions communicate to the community at large? I'm going to answer that question with some other questions. Okay. Uh, so uh, almost different ways to think about that question. What is our testimony to the non-Christian world right now? What are Christians hearing? What are, sorry, what are non-Christians hearing from the Christian community? What's the voice that they hear? Is there any gospel? Is there any gospel being proclaimed? Is there any good news being announced? Or do we only announce our gripes? And even if there is good news being whispered, is it just being drowned out by griping and complaining? I ask that as a rhetorical question. <laughs> uh, it, my, my tone would seem to imply, I, I think in some places, the gripes are louder than the gospel. And maybe this question is more to the point about how we really honor everyone, because a lot of the conversation is rather one-sided, I think. But, but, but here's this question. Can we genuinely preserve the interest, interest of public health while also genuinely pursuing the economic welfare of the entire population? Can we, can we genuinely uphold the interest of public health, but also genuinely be concerned about economic welfare of people. Because to couch this, uh, the sort of econ the economic considerations of this in terms of, of lives versus profits just uh, lacks an understanding of economics um, at, a, at a larger level. People, real people are affected in real ways uh, by this economic shutdown. And not even just people in our community, um, but there are people in, in Africa and in other places in the world where there are food shortages. There's unrest being stirred up, conflict being stirred up because people don't have access to food because of all of this craziness, because there, there's food production that's been shut down and there's food distribution that's been shut down because of all this. The economic impact of this has real effect on real people and it can be devastating. Let's don't dismiss or downplay that either. Can we honor everyone really? Everyone in the way that we speak and act and 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 move forward as a community of faith, because that would say we obviously we don't have control over most of that, but we even as a people um, can move forward. Uh, we can just lean forward. That that our desire is to progress, is to make strides. Uh, forward not only as a worship community, but, but for our city and county and state and so forth. Because real people are affected in real ways. And, and is our message on either side of this equation communicating that we're genuinely interested in honoring everyone in those regards, both, both in terms of health and in terms of uh, economic welfare? It does affect the general welfare of real people um, and sometimes in really deep and devastating ways. Now, so, so those are four kind of diagnostic readiness questions 
uh, I want to I share now, as, as we as elders brought those questions into um, our discussions on Thursday night and our thinking and planning about this, um, what some of the outcome of that was. Again, I'll leave you with the questions. I think we need to wrestle with them individually about our readiness to come to worship, but um, also kind of how we're dealing with that collectively. So uh, one of the things I'll share is, you, you may have heard last week, and maybe I, I, don't, I don't know that I've really mentioned it, but um, the option was sort of presented to churches to uh, have outdoor worship services without limited numbers and that kind of thing. Um, and so there were some other kind of qualifications of that or whatever, but churches could worship outdoors. Long, long story short, um, our uh, session has decided we really don't want to pursue that. There are a number of reasons to just make that um, uh, less desirable. You, you think about the, the, the two big ones being um, the possibility of rain, but even, even more to the point, just the heat that is not far away from us in the middle of summer. Um, they're, they're just things that make that uh, maybe a little impractical. So we're not planning on doing that. I'm, sh- I'm sharing that because that question immediately was asked by some people, and there's been some interest in that. What I would say is it's a perfect opportunity for small groups, community groups, missional communities, and that kind of thing who are looking for an opportunity to be together um, again that worshiping communities can gather outdoors, properly social, socially distanced and with other precautions and that kind of thing. Um, but there are opportunities to do that. Some of our small groups are already making uh, steps in those directions. But, but we're not going to have corporate worship uh, outside. That's not part of our plan right now. So for the next few weeks, we will continue streaming services online um, exclusively. So in other words, this is what we'll do over the next few weeks while we also await the next announcement from the governor about what phase two and three guidelines are going to be for mass gatherings. And so what he says about uh, number allowances or limits or whatever will inform our response to that, is all I will say. Uh, So um, right now it was 10 for any kind of indoor gathering, church or otherwise, in phase one. Uh, As that number is raised, we'll, we'll, we'll listen to what he has to say about that and then respond accordingly. But over the coming weeks, we're, we're planning whatever, the, whatever the, the number is, whatever he says about worship and, and other mass gatherings, we're going to be planning in the direction of resuming worship services in the Family Life Center, in the gym, as others may know it, at the appropriate time, as I said, to be, to be determined. But the, the FLC is a large space. It'll certainly allow us to spread out more than any other place on this property. And again, in what numbers we'll, we'll decide based on uh, orders and guidance from uh, government officials. But it's a large space. It allows us flexibility in uh, the way we arrange seating. It's also the easiest place around here to clean under these circumstances because it's hard seats on hard surface. Uh, so it's just much more conducive to trying to, to do this and be flexible and adaptable about it. So um, those plans will include appropriate precautions such as avoiding contact as we've been doing, uh, wearing masks, using hand sanitizers. Again, 
To what extent any of that will be dictated, I don't know. All, all I'm saying is those will be in our uh, sort of realm of considerations as we're planning in that direction. And um, it's sort of like running downfield for a long pass from the quarterback and you're going to sort of run under the ball. We don't know what the governor is going to say, so we don't know exactly what we're running toward. We don't know even what our response is going to be uh, to what the governor says. But, um, but, but either way, we're planning with those uh, sort of precautions and health considerations in mind. And um, those plans will also come with the understanding not everybody's going to want to gather corporately right away, okay? So let's state that as a given, and not only that, but, but I want to say well before we get to that point, uh, nobody ought to feel pressured to gather, and nobody ought to feel guilty for not gathering. I'm going to say to you, one of the things that concerned me from the outset as a pastor about this kind of congregation, maybe I said it, but we've got some warriors in this congregation, lion-hearted men and women, and, and if, if I said come, they'll come, even at risk to their own health. Um, and so we, we don't want to rush headlong and foolishly uh, and prematurely into, into circumstances that just aren't necessary. So I'm just saying that because I know some, some people would be more inclined to go even if uh, instinctively they know maybe they ought not to. Make wise decisions on a personal level about that. Uh, don't feel pressured to do that prematurely for yourself or for your family or whatever the case may be. But that's the direction we're moving in, uh, worshiping in, um, in the FLC, again, depending on what further guidance is given. And uh, we're thankful that in the meantime, like I said, some doors are opening up to us. So even as smaller little expressions of our body, we can begin to assemble together. We might even have some groups that think about um, some sometime between now and then or over the coming months um, that maybe they have small gatherings uh, even on Sunday morning. So as the service broadcast on um, on Sunday morning that you've got a couple of families outdoors <laughs> with the TV on the deck or something like that broadcasting the service. Um, but uh, there are doors opening up. There are ways where we can begin to take steps, but we want to take them uh, wisely and lovingly as we do. As people who honor everyone, who love the brotherhood, who honor civil authorities, the emperor and the governors, as it were, but above all, as people who fear God and worship and obey him. Now, that's our heart uh, as we sort of move forward with this. I hope it'll largely be embraced um, by you all and that we'll look forward to walking together in unity as we move in that direction. Well, let's Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you as always for your word. And uh, there's so much to say and think about that. And uh, Lord, I, I, I recognize as always, I'm as capable as anybody of confusing things that are clear. If that's been the case here today, Lord, would you just supernaturally make things clear that need to be clear to people um, so that we would have a heart that really follows hard after you, that because we fear you, and because we love you, 
that we would honor everyone that you've commanded us to honor with a genuine heart of love and humility toward others, knowing that above all and in the end, our honor toward them and our honorable conduct and our love for them and for one another will say a whole lot about you as much as it says about us. Lord, we want to bear the name of Christ well and honorably on this earth. So would you just uh, root this truth deep in our hearts and cause it to bring forth the fruit that you want to see in us and that you want the world to see in us. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.